I just want to ask a few questions and open it up to the two of you for discussion. And, and first, um, kind of maybe more of a personal question for the two of you is, um, when we talk about confessions, we've talked about creeds. Tommy, you listed a ton of them off. Um, even more modern confessions like the, um, the Baptist faith and message. Um, but both of you men hold to the 1689 Confession or the Second London Baptist Confession. Uh, IOPT adheres to that confession. Grace Baptist Church does. IRBS does. Founders does as well. So when we talk about confessionalism, that's typically what's in the back of our minds. But um, Dr. Renahan, we'll start with you. How did you men um, come to personally adhere to the London, Second London Baptist Confession? When I, when I was a, a freshman in college... I had a professor who, of history of Western civilization, came to the Reformation, talked about the five points of Calvinism. I had never heard of them before, but I thought that makes sense to me, it sounds good, which set me off beginning to read Reformed literature, Banner of Truth books, etc. Uh, when I graduated from college, uh, the leaders of my church urged me to go to seminary, and I, I knew that I didn't want to try to fight the battle that I would fight with Presbyterians if I went to Presbyterian school. So I was looking for, being a Baptist by conviction, was looking for documents and means to demonstrate that Baptists have Calvinistic roots. And the Confession of Faith came along, and it was the perfect answer to that, to help me to understand. Of course, I didn't understand it then as I grew later on in the years. In, in my understanding of it, but that's basically the, the, the path. It was, for me, it was kind of inverse. I went to a Presbyterian school and found out, oh, man, I'm in the middle of a battle. I didn't even know it, and then I found the confession and said, well, this is very helpful. Yeah. Pastor that's Tom, how did you uh, come to the... Yeah, well, I, I was one of those uh, no creed with the Bible guys. You know, I thought that was the most holy position as a young man and uh, went to seminary and had, as my first professor, Tom Nettles for church history and uh, couldn't believe how bad wrong he was about so many things. You know, and <laughs> then uh, got into Baptist history with him, and he made us buy this book uh, by William Lumpkin called Baptist Confessions of Faith, and it was $12, and I was poor. And I looked at that book, I thought, what a waste of money. Why would he make me buy this book, you know? And, and we would read these confessions. Got to the, I was getting hooked into the whole idea of confessions being valuable. And uh, when we got to the Second London Confession, I was just blown away. Mm. Yes, I mean, this is incredible, mm. you know, all the intricacies here. And mm. So that's when I first got uh, introduced to it. It's just been gradual, I think, since then. Um, when Founders started, it was all men who believed the 1689, and so that was a, a really good collegial kind of relationship to have with those guys, and many of them, are, yeah, all of them, further along than I was and uh, more experienced, and so I just kind of rode their coattails. Mm-hmm. So moving from the personal then to the more corporate, uh, as you men both lead institutions that adhere to this confession, practically speaking, what does it look like for a church uh, to be, as you said, uh, robustly confessional? Well, uh, for us, and we have some disagreements with some of our Baptist friends over this too, but we have the New Hampshire Confession for our membership, and so everybody has to sign off on that for the membership. Our leadership needs to be 1689, and everybody, all the members need to acknowledge 1689 is the church's confession. We, we did that because we don't think it's right for a person to be expected to be a, a very careful theologian before you can qualify to be a member of a church. And you, know, you want to have new Christians, and they're always going to be weak Christians, and they ought to be allowed to be 
a genuine part of the body of Christ, but not disruptive uh, doctrinally. And so our, for us, our leadership, as I said, all of our officers must stand and vow to the congregation that they will uphold, they believe, they uphold, and they will defend this confession of faith. Uh, all of our teachers know that this is our church's confession of faith, and if anybody teaches contrary to it, then you know, we have the means whereby to remove them from that. Um, so, yeah, that's, the, that's practically how we do that. It's, a, it's just been a great tool and instrument to appeal to. It saves a lot of you know, conversations. You don't have to start back from ground zero. You don't have to start back like, okay, we're all coming to the table. We, we, none of us knows nothing, and we're all going to teach each other. You know? It's no, we all have a, we're committed to these things. And so if you, you're going to move us off of this, you're going to have to show us from the Scripture how these things are not right, and you're, you've got a massive mountain to climb. Dr. Rennan, you've been in churches and are now and are leading a seminary, which is confessional. Practically speaking, in your mind, would you say anything different from Pastor Tom or would add things? Um, let me talk about the seminary. Um, we, I think we have a similar view in terms of what the seminary does. We require all of our regular faculty members to sign a statement that they agree with the confession and ask them to identify any areas where they may have quibbles uh, or exceptions and then we would look at those. But we, we allow some men who are not committed to the confession of faith to come and teach. But we ask them to promise that they won't teach against the confession of faith. So uh, David Van Drunen is coming in a couple of weeks to teach a class for us. We've had John Fesco come and teach a course on apologetics. And we're really thankful for those men. And they're men of integrity who when they come, they know what we believe, and the confession helps them to be able to teach in our midst. So that's, that's how we do it institutionally. So you've mentioned the New Hampshire confession, um, and that brings up a, a question. Are there other confessions that either of you two men would be comfortable signing on to and saying, yes, this is my confession of faith as well? other than the uh, Second London Confession? You know, in terms of a robust confession, probably not for me. But things like the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, you know, I'm comfortable with that. Nashville Statement, uh, Danvers Statement, those are things that I affirm. Uh, I would say sometimes I think the language needs to be a little tighter. Uh, I was involved in uh, forming the Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel Again, if I were writing it for myself or our church, it would be different than it is, but it was kind of a consensus document trying to draw uh, a wide group together. So, yeah, I'm not a, I don't have any hesitations on those kinds of things, but uh, if you're asking me, you know, what, are you going to adopt this confession as your confession? I don't know. I'll probably die in 1689. I, I don't know of anything that would, you know, I'm not tempted to think there's something out there that I haven't seen yet that I should go for. What about the Nicene Creed? Yeah, I'm from the Nicene Creed. <laughs> yeah, what? Oh, what? I, I get what you're saying. I, <laughs> being a wise guy. Yeah, that's right. Okay. That's why we love him, right? <laughs> um, what we've done at the seminary is we've adopted what I like to call the three forms of Baptist unity. And that is the First London Confession, the Second London Confession, and the Baptist Catechism. So those are our guiding documents with the proviso that if, there, if it were asserted that there were differences between any of them, the 1689 would be the primary. Mm. But uh, that was, I, I led the seminary to do that because I thought that it was a helpful thing. 
those confessions all belong to us. They're all in harmony with each other. The catechism is a great tool for families to use, to be able to teach. Uh, it's very similar to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, the First London Confession is a very orthodox document. So, so we've done that in terms of bringing them together. But I've been reliably informed that the covenant theology of the First London Confession is different from the second, or is that a urban legend? I would say <laughs> urban legend. Okay. Yeah. Definitely urban legend, yeah. Um, so another issue that often comes up is when we talk about subscribing to a confession, what does that mean? I mean, it, if there's something that I disagree with in the confession, anything at all, can I not subscribe to it? Um, Dr. Renahan, I know you've talked about in the past you know, different levels of, su- of subscription. Um, can, can a person legitimately take exception to certain things in the confession and still say, yes, I'm confessional? I think so, yes, so long as they do that honestly and publicly. They don't say, I subscribe to the whole confession, but don't tell you that there's this doctrine or that doctrine that they're holding back on. But if a man comes to me and says, I love your confession of faith, but I disagree with this point, I'm very pleased with that. I can live with that very easily. It's the dishonest subscription that troubles me greatly. And the specificity then. So not just saying, you know, I hold to the London Baptist Confession. Um, Not all of it, but that's my confession. But you seeking for, like, specificity. What are the things that you don't hold to? Tell me. Tell me what you don't agree with. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Tom, any? No, I, I agree with that because the danger where you don't have that specificity is that a person can feel like, well, I'm being confessional, but I just don't agree with that, and no, yeah, I don't agree with that either, and I don't agree with that, and before long, you're not being confessional. So, yeah, yeah I yeah. think the, expi- yeah. the explicit exceptions are very helpful. Yeah. For Honest, honesty demands it, really. Yeah. Yeah. Now, it's been a, a, a few years, but I remember in a final exam for one of your classes, Dr. Renahan. Well, don't, wait a minute. Don't tell what <laughs> You change those every time you give the class, don't you? But you give several different types of subscription. Are there any types of confessional subscription that you would say are, that's not really subscription, or maybe that's an in, inappropriate type of uh, confessional subscription. Now you're making me remember my lecture notes. I could go get my, my final <laughs> exam. I, th- I think I have nine different forms of the way that people put things together from what I call absolute subscription or jot and tittle where every single word and every single line has to be accepted all the way down to um, what I call Rodney King subscription. <laughs> Why can't we all just get along? <laughs> you know, and, and in between there are various levels. Um, for me, I used to use the word full subscription, but now I'm preferring strict subscription. It's got a little bit more meat on its bones, muscle given to it. Um, that's my preferred method because that allows me to publicly declare what I believe and make it plain. What's the distinction there between full and strict? Uh, they're, they're intentionally the same, but I think that the word strict just... Sounds stricter. (laughs) (laughs) In the PCA right now, I mean, they're going through some real battles because of the the subscribing to the system. Yeah, good faith subscription is what they call it. Yeah, you know, and and the man, and it's creating some real headaches for the ones that are serious. What is the system? Yeah. You know, if you don't define it, imagine that a confession of faith is a circle, right? Imagine that it's a circle. But a system would be like an amoeba inside the circle with... Who knows what kind of shape? 
Now, it's encapsulated by the circle, but it doesn't include everything in the circle. So it takes uh, an amoeba-like shape. Yeah. So, I mean, that makes all of us think, and everyone's asking the question in their minds. Are there parts of the confession that you two men would say, I don't necessarily agree with that, or perhaps I at least don't agree with the wording of the confession in this area? Well, there's, you know, I generally agree with it. There's some stuff in there I don't really like. <laughs> Those of you of our age remember the TV show Tell the Truth? That's the moment right now. Uh, you know, I used to have a problem with the Pope being the Antichrist uh, more than I do now, and certainly this Pope I don't have any problem with <laughs> saying that about. Um, and, I, you know, studying some of the history about it, too. I, I, yeah, you know, so I don't, I don't know that there's any one thing in the confession that uh, I would pause too heavily over. Can't think of anything right now. I don't have any. I, I read a book that was written about it, and I agreed <laughs> with the book. So. <laughs> I, re- I think I read that same one. Um, Dr. Renahan, is the Pope the Antichrist? Yes. All right. <laughs> um, in all seriousness, though, who I like to call uh, Dr. Renahan the Younger, uh, Samuel Renahan, your son, has actually preached a, a series of sermons on that question mm-hmm. that I found very helpful, so would recommend that to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but would you care to elaborate? Well... Um, first off, it doesn't say he is the Antichrist. He says he's Antichrist. that Antichrist. An Antichrist was not, um, uh, bo- not identified as a single individual, but as a, a system. And the Pope represents that system. But if you, if you take that out of the Confession of Faith, there are other places that it affects. In chapter 8, there's a paragraph that speaks about Christ as the only mediator and denies the fact that there are any others. Now, that's pointing to 26.4, which speaks about the Pope as the Antichrist. Likewise, in chapter 22 of Christian Liberty, there's a state, there are statements that no earthly bodies, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, have the right to impose religious belief or practice upon Christians because, as you read it from paragraph 2, God alone is Lord of the conscience, has left it free from the, the commandments of men. So those two things are affected by what they intended by that statement on the Pope as Antichrist. Also, if you look very closely at that paragraph, 26.4, the first half of the paragraph, which no one has a problem with, is a fantastic statement about Christ as the head over all things. The second part is intended to be a contrast to that because the Pope claims all of the things that are asserted of Christ as king in the first half. And I think you have to say that any human who claims the rights that belong to Jesus Christ alone as our Lord and King is antichrist in that sense. And that's the point that they were making. So, you know, you know, it troubles me. Well, maybe that's too strong a language. I think we've been too quick to read the second part of that paragraph without reference to the first part of the paragraph. And really, it's not a statement about eschatology. It's a statement about ecclesiology and what the church is. Dear brothers and sisters, I know you will agree with me when I say this. Jesus Christ alone is the head of the church. There's no earthly authority that can claim that right. And when the Roman system, centered on the Pope of Rome, claims that right, we have to say he's the Antichrist. Amen. Um, in, towards the end of your talk, Dr. Renahan, you um, spoke of the, the history of the American Baptist uh, Convention and that attempt to 
uh, utilized the New Hampshire Confession as the confession of that convention, and then Wolfkin's opposition to it and um, the adoption of the New Testament basically as the confession of the North American or the Northern Baptists. And you said that um, you know we can look at the history and the trajectory and where the American Baptists are now, and this is evidence of you know what happens when you deny confessionalism. And you also said that we can see that often in church history. Are there other points in history that you would that you would say yes that's another point in which somebody has said no creed but the bible no creed but christ we don't want any other confessions just the bible and it's led into liberalism or latitudinarianism yeah first off did you notice the name of the guy who was pastor of park ab baptist cornelius wolfkin <laughs> seems like a very appropriate name for the action that he took dutch name but um i i purposely stayed with baptist information the whole way through and could have expanded it out to other denominations. For example, the first thing that comes to mind, in 1719 in Exeter, which is a city um, to the west of London, a controversy developed over the question, is it necessary for a man to retain his Christian ministry, pastors, uh, is it necessary for him to confess a Trinitarian creed? See, Enlightenment rationalism is taking over and there's, there's a great pressure to do away with Trinitarianism in Christian churches. So that debate was held. It spilled over to London, to a place called Salters Hall, where the debate was held. And the four nonconformist denominations all were present. The particular Baptists, the general Baptists, the Congregationalists, and the Presbyterians. They all had representatives. The debate was held. And then in, in England, oftentimes what they do to determine who wins a debate as you go out through certain doors. And when you exit this way, you're in favor of this side. And when you exit that way, you're in favor of that side. Well, what happened after the debate? The Presbyterians, you know, it's ironic that the Westminster Confession of Faith is an English document, but name some historic English Presbyterians after the 17th century. Mm -hmm. You know why you can't do it? Because they died. They adopted the Unitarian view. They denied the doctrine of the Trinity. So the vast majority of the Presbyterians present at Salters Hall supported the anti-Trinitarian idea. Likewise, the General Baptists, most of the General Baptists went down the Unitarian road and denied the importance of the doctrine of the Trinity. It was the Congregationalists and the particular Baptists, not to a man, there were some of them who gave in as well, but the vast majority of them were committed to a Trinitarian creed, and they were the ones throughout the, the 18th century, in the face of the Enlightenment, who held on to orthodoxy and promoted orthodoxy, it was among them, ultimately, that the dissenters came forth. Where, where did the, the uh, Baptist Missionary Society begin? It began with Trinitarians, who were particular Baptists. You know the name William Carey and Andrew Fuller and those guys. They were carried through that. But that was, that's a great example, because it's easy to show that two English denominations died because they refused to recognize the importance of a Trinitarian creed on the part of a gospel minister. And just a point of clarification, what is the difference between a general Baptist and a particular Baptist? The general Baptists were committed to essentially an Arminian theology. General has reference to their view of the atonement and all that that involves, that the intention of God in sending the Son was to satisfy the demands of righteousness against all of humanity. Particular Baptist means they believed in a particular atonement, that the purpose of the Trinity in sending the Son 
is that he would die specifically for the sins of the elect. But, but the term general has a much broader, all of the Arminian implications of general atonement would go along with that. Uh, Pastor Tom, you addressed this some in, in your talk as well. Um, there, there is a, a complaint that perhaps a 350-year-old confession is no longer sufficient for what we need today. That was a different day, different time, different needs, different controversies. Uh, and therefore, we're, we live in a new day with new controversies and new needs, and we need a, a new confession. What would you say to that? Well, I would say that uh, the... I'm not inclined to try to come up with a new confession, but certainly statements on things ought to be made. Um, I don't think our forefathers who, who put together the Second London Confession were concerned to define uh, a man and a woman as being biologically determined, you know, because that was like, duh, you know, who doubts that? Well, today we've changed our constitution here at the church to say biological male, biological female. Uh, for that very purpose in terms of how we will uh, conduct things and let things happen uh, in, under the orbit of our responsibility. So I don't think we should be afraid of making statements that are uh, appropriate to the needs of the day. But in terms of the, what the Bible teaches, it, we're always just looking to, to determine how to apply that. And again, the, the one thing... Uh, on the magistrate that just jumped off the page at us as we were trying to work through that here, our elders, when there were executive orders being given, and by God's grace, the, our governor during the COVID uh, disruption issued an executive order and quickly amended it to take note of the right of churches to worship. But other executive orders and, and things that we were looking at, you know, well, this is a civil magistrate. Romans 13 you know, says that we're to... Uh, be respectful and submissive to that. And that was, the, that was almost the only thing that was being said by so many evangelicals. When we look at the confession, it says, well, and he's to be uh, submitted to in all lawful things that he commands, which means that they're possible that a civil magistrate could command something that's not lawful, not just the things that are very clearly contrary to the Word of God, but not contained in the Word of God, things that are not his purview. So we, we've gotten greater clarity on this, but every authority that, that we have on earth is vested authority from Jesus Christ, who has all authority, and that authority is only wielded properly under Christ if it is utilized in the sphere for which it is given. And so elders of this church have authority. But if we start calling church members and say, hey, uh, we want you to bring us barbecue ribs every Tuesday night, we're your elders. You know, well, that's not a lawful command for what God's called elders to do. Similarly, whenever governors start trying to tell you how you ought to worship, and I'm going to say this in one of my talks this week, God willing, about uh, the, the governor of, of uh, Virginia at that time, you know, begin to try to tell Christians, this is legitimate. This is just as valid as that. You don't have to meet together. There's nothing sacred about being in a pew you can worship online. You know, I mean, just stay in your lane. You know, I was just, that's not what God called you to be a civil magistrate for. There's a, a great new book just recently come out about that kind of thing, right? A revolutionary reading. Revolutionary reading, Romans 13, Founders Press. Founders Press. And you, wrote, uh, and you wrote a recommendation for it. Yeah. Timothy Decker. Timothy Decker. Can I answer that question yeah. too? Yeah. Um, we believe 
that the Bible teaches that there is a faith once for all delivered to the saints. The, the doctrines we believe don't need to be changed. They need to be expressed. And that's what our confession of faith does. It expresses what Christians have believed for centuries. Those things don't change. Um, it's very important to recognize that in the body of the confession itself, it incorporates the language of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed um, and the Chalcedonian Statement. All three of those things, the language is present, and they're intentionally tying themselves to the early church by incorporating that language. When you get to, oh, say, chapter 24 of the Civil Magistrate, um, you just talked about it, Tom, Chapter 25 of marriage, now it might not define gender biologically, but it's a great chapter on what marriage is, very relevant to who we are today. And then the distinctives of who we are as Baptists really begin to come in chapter 26 of the church. Certainly there are many other Christians today and in the past who have disagreed with the way that we formulate church doctrine, practice of baptism, Lord's Supper, congregationalism rather than episcopacy or some such thing. But we recognize that those are at the end, and we have some differences of opinion with others, but still they reflect the practices of Baptist churches for 375 years. So the, the argument, I think, falls apart when you recognize that the confession of faith is simply seeking to present the, the faith that has once for all been delivered to the saints. It was given in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, it was summarized for us in many different ways. That's the fruit that we have. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of myself. I don't trust myself to think that my ideas are going to be the right ideas. I want to submit to the Holy Spirit, who Jesus promised would lead the church into all truth. And I believe that these, the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Chalcedonian Statement, and the summary that we have in them, in our confession, which agrees to, the, to a large degree with all the rest of those Reformation confessions that you were mm -hmm. describing. I'm happy to stand in that huge crowd and say, this is what I believe, and this is what the Bible teaches as the Christian faith. Yeah, and I want to put a, a point on that as well, that you know, pride is one of the most insidious and subtle sins mm -hmm. that can affect our minds and our hearts. Um, and we can often think that we're being humble when we say, I just want to adhere to the word of God, and I don't want to care about what all these other people say. I just want, what does the word of God say? I don't care about the, what the confessions say. But what you said in saying, I don't trust myself in the ideas that I have, I mean, that takes a level of spiritual humility to be able to say the Lord has granted the church gifts and confessions and teachers all through the centuries. And for me to have enough humility to say, I, don't, I can't get everything right on my own. I need these gifts that the Lord has given, and to say, I'm going to adhere to this confession because I don't, I don't have it all. Those guys are smarter than me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, it's not, and we don't believe it because it's in the confession. We believe it because what the confession says about it is true and biblical. That's right. Yeah. So, and they, know, they've demonstrated from Scripture yeah. why they phrase themselves in the way that yeah. they do. So, you know, yeah, you're going to disprove that. You're going to move me off of that. You've got a high mountain to climb. Yeah. Um, what would you say, because there's often this um, hesitancy, they may agree, yeah, confessionalism is good, um, and we churches should be more serious about it and be more robust in it, but at the same time, the Second London Baptist Confession is a little bit too strict, and it's a little bit too narrow. It keeps people out when they're good brothers and they're good sisters, and shouldn't we let them in as well? Can't we make it a little bit broader? What, what would you say to that charge? 
Well, I would say that if there are legitimate exceptions that don't um, mitigate against the unity of a Baptist church, and we can look at those. But, um, you know, I've, I've talked to people who are convinced Peter Baptists weeping in my study, wanting to pursue membership in our church. And I said, we love you. you know, this is who we are. And, you know, if we accepted you in here, it would be going against who we are, which is part and parcel of the reason that you love us. You know, we'd be denying the very things that God's done here. So um, it's, in, in one sense, yeah, that's true, but you don't want to be heavy-handed with it, and you don't want to be flippant with it. Um, but confessions are boundaries. Good fences make good neighbors. Yeah, yeah I, I would largely agree. I think that that's exactly right. Um, I think a church can admit into its membership somebody who might have uh, an exception, mm-hmm. so long as they would agree not to challenge the doctrine of the church, to quietly sit under the preaching and receive the preaching, to not distribute it literature or have conversations that would undermine. Mm-hmm. And, and usually it's those kinds of people who are very willing to do right. that because they love the church. But we, we had the same situation in our church in California. A wonderful uh, couple about my age, um, Presbyterians, they, they stayed for a long time. Then they came and wanted to be members, and we had to say no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, are, are you willing to be baptized? No. Okay, I'm sorry. Then you can't join our church. And they went off to somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not that, you know, the elders have determined that this is our confession of faith, and you better not teach against what the elders have determined. <laughs> but the church, God has given the church the authority to determine what its confession is, and the church, the entire church has determined this, and you're going against the entire church when you come into membership and, and teach against it. Yeah, I, I think that if you were to do this, the church needs to know. When we accept Bob and Jane into membership, they do have an, an issue with such and such, so you all know that. Uh, are you willing to receive them with this issue? Right. You know, in, in uh, one of the most touching uh, moments that I know about in the early Baptist missionary movement between William Carey and Andrew Fuller, Carey was over there in, in uh, India with another Baptist couple, he and his wife and another Baptist couple, and then there was a ship's captain who was a Presbyterian. They're the only Christians on the continent, and so they're starting a church. And Fuller, back in England, who is weeping his eyes out because he can't raise more money to support this mission, uh, writing back and forth, discovers that Kerry has received this Presbyterian man to the Lord's table. And he says, you can't do this. See, this, is, this goes against what we believe. And, and Kerry says, you don't understand. We're the only Christians here. I'm not going to deny this man. They back and forth. Kerry quit. And then he started again. Then he... He finally, the last letter that he writes back, he says, I'm not fully convinced by the arguments. And Fuller's concern was, if churches here find out about this, the mission is over. Hmm. They will not contribute. And, and Kerry says, I'm willing to throw the ship, the, the guns overboard in order to save the ship. And so, yeah, we will. And it must have been a very touching hmm. conversation to have uh, on that point. Conversation that took months to go back and forth. That's right, yeah. The anxiety. Um, so uh, would you allow Presbyterians to the Lord's table? We do. And we do that knowing that we are uh, we're being inconsistent. We are intentionally inconsistent. We've, we've chosen this path rather than the alternatives because we think weighing it out 
this noted inconsistency is better than this other path. And it stems some from, uh, I think, what the impulse was behind Carrie. But we treat those who believe they have been baptized scripturally, who we believe have not been baptized scripturally, as a matter of sanctification. And so we will say to them, you know, we, you're a faithful Christian. We have no reason to doubt that. You're in good standing in an orderly church uh, that can commend you. And so we will allow you to eat the Lord's Supper with us as a guest uh, that is under the authority of another church. And you don't have it right about this, but when you get to heaven, you will. And so we're going to be patient with you now. So, and again, and we know that it's inconsistent, but that's kind of the way we've worked it out rather than just saying, no, this is what our doctrine requires and you're not going to do it. Yeah, you know, the, the question is really, it comes down to two virtues that the Bible teaches. One of them is unity and one of them is purity. Mm-hmm. Those who favor, now, you can't set virtues against each other, but in a sense, you have these two issues that pull, there, there's tension between them. Those who place a high value on purity are the ones who make the decision that only Baptists can come to the table. Those who recognize that the Bible has a very high view of unity say, this is a means by which we can demonstrate our Catholicity. Don't be afraid to use that word. Always have it with a lowercase c. But <laughs> and a footnote if you use it in the Apostles' Creed in your church. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a way to demonstrate our Catholicity, that the kingdom of God please don't be shocked by this, is not a Baptist kingdom. There are a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ who are not Baptists. And, and a practice like you just described is a means by which, a, a simple but open means by which we can say, we treat you as our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're glad that you can share with us in this thing. That's how I view it. Yeah. Yeah, I have often thought about it as, you know, if you are a member perhaps of a Presbyterian church, uh, what we're doing is we are trusting the, um, the church that you are a member of who advocates that, yes, this is a brother, this is a sister in Christ, mm-hmm. and if you're a brother or sister in Christ, then yeah. you can come to the... Which we yeah. do for other churches as yeah, well. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, it gives us that ability to say we're not the only ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are there, in your minds, any potential dangers uh, associated with confessionalism? Sure. I mean, there's dangers with orthodoxy. There's dangers with anything. Uh, I mean, sin. <laughs> one, of the, one of the early lessons I learned in our church after we adopted the 1689 Confession, and we'd gone through a lot of heartache over many years. I think it was seven or eight years in after I'd been here. And it, we were confessional. People knew we were confessional. People didn't join because of anything other than knowing that we were confessional. They, wouldn't, they weren't surprised by that is when we had a, a major disruption among 12 of our members who were really at the heart of what we were doing. I mean, they were very involved. And I remember um, the other things going on in my life at that time that were difficult, but I remember having to lead our congregation, our elders and leading the congregation to deal with that. That just hit me. You know, just because you're 1689 doesn't mean you're sinless. Mm. You know, well, we sin too. So... Mm-hmm. Part of the danger is you can think you got it, and there can be a lot of pride. Yeah. Uh, you know, man, we're 1689. We are the confessional ones. Yeah. And others, you just think, well, yeah, we're confessional, so we don't really have to study these things. We just quote the confession or we just look to the confession. And um, 
you can, you got to have the spirit. I mean, you know, without the spirit, it doesn't matter how straight you are. Uh, Theologically, you're going to die. So there's temptations that probably are all rooted in pride that uh, you can more easily fall into perhaps because you're confident in what you've declared yourself to be and believe. And you, you just don't get a pass on the basic Christian life disciplines need of grace uh, just because you're reformed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Ditto? Yeah, I, I think another one that comes to my mind is the danger of a lack of integrity. Um, and I think that's where churches go wrong. They'll have a confession of faith and neglect it, forget about it, mm. and allow the ministry to go in a new direction it, it becomes sort of the, the banner or the, the, the name on the front of the church, but doesn't really reflect what the church is about. And, and that, that can be a danger. We, mm-hmm. we can say that we believe this, but we really don't. So I, I think uh, integrity is the, the key. You know, people have asked me, what, what can you do to ensure that your seminary doesn't become a liberal seminary? Look around, talk about Harvard and Yale and Princeton and blah, blah, blah. And I, my answer is, I can't. Mm-hmm. No church can. Even in the New Testament, churches failed. Mm-hmm. Five of the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3 um, had to be charged by the Lord Jesus to repent. Uh, if that's true of churches, that's going to be true of the seminary. It, but it takes integrity. The, the leadership has to really mean what they say, do what they say. Without that, you can have the, the banner... And, and lose everything. Correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't uh, PCUSA still adhere to the Westminster Confession? It's been modified. Yeah, it was modified in the early 20th century okay. through Charles Briggs's influence. There's a there's a lot of people that kind of throw confessionalism up as a bit of a smokescreen. The minute you criticize them on a particular teaching or doctrine or something that they hold, they'll say, "Well, I'm but I'm confessional. You know, I adhere to the Westminster Confession or I adhere to the Second London Baptist Confession. So how can you criticize me as being unorthodox on anything?" Yeah. Um, but it takes more than just saying I adhere to. But okay, what is it that you adhere right. to? Exactly. You know, when uh, <clears throat> Southern Seminary in Louisville had a massive downgrade in the middle part of the 20th century. And when Timothy George went there to teach, they liked him because he'd got a PhD from Harvard and they wanted him. And the president, taking him around, showing him everything, said, now there's one more thing you got to do. He said, we have this confession, you got to sign it. So it's the abstract of principles, but don't, it's not that big a deal. You know, you don't have to pay that much attention to it. Mm. It's not something you got to take too seriously. And Timothy said, man, you know, I sounded like John Hancock. Yeah, I believe this, you know. But that kind of mentality from the president, that was had passed on for a couple of generations. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, then you just got, you're, you're being dishonest. Yeah. Um, in what ways can the confession help us in our own personal uh, piety and devotion? Oh, well, man, I, I refer to it regularly. Um, I, it helps me to express things when I'm teaching that I want just a good, simple statement on. But it also, it, it, it's, it's hard to, to not just sometimes break out and praise to God when you're reading it. I mean, these things have been thought out really well, and they're stated very clearly. And you look up the scriptures that are referenced, you say, yes, this is true. This is my God. 
This is what Christ has done. This is what he will do. Um, So I think like in any way, I mean, truth ignites devotion. And where you have truth clearly defined for you and articulated and taught well, it's like any other context where that happens. Man, there's just a, there's a, a warmth that can come uh, to you devotionally. That's been the, true for me. One of my favorite statements in the confession is at the end of chapter 2. Chapter 2 is of God and of the Holy Trinity. And the third paragraph deals with the doctrine of the Trinity, which I think is the most incomprehensible, the most difficult of all Christian doctrines. It is a necessity, but it's something that even in eternity we will not be able to comprehend. We will confess that God is one and God is three. But the, the paragraph ends after using the, the strict technical language about the doctrine of the Trinity. It says this, which doctrine of the Trinity is the foundation of all our communion with God and comfortable dependence upon him? And I love that statement because it says basically what you just said, Tom. The more that we know about the most difficult doctrine, the deeper our communion with God will be and our comfortable dependence upon him. Now, I want those two things. I want communion with God, and I want comfortable dependence upon him so that when the tragedies of life come, I can know that my triune God loves me, is sovereign over all things, and that his will is better than my will. Your will be done. And it's that doctrine that helps me. So when I read chapter 2 of God and of the Holy Trinity, or I read chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator, I, and I, as Tom said, you bow down in praise to the God of heaven and earth that he has, he, he gave his, the second person of the Holy Trinity who assumed you a human nature so that we might be forgiven. Uh, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what deep theology ought to do for us. Yeah, you read through the confession, and there are so many points in which it's just evident to you that these were men whose hearts were aflame with the love of Christ. And the scriptures tell us that it's enough for a student to be like his teacher. So if you make these men your teacher, I mean, the more you read, the more you become like them in their love for Christ. Yeah, in in chapter 5, which is of the fall of man of sin and its punishment, there's this dark, dark, dark chapter, a paragraph that deals with the nature of sin. It's depressing to read except for the final four words. No, more than four words. The final phrase, which says, unless the Lord Jesus sets them free. And all of a sudden, that dark paragraph is turned to light because we're reminded that our sins are forgiven and set free by the Lord Jesus Christ who died. And you come across these nuggets throughout where you're just sent back to the gospel. You're sent back to Christ. And you say... That's wonderful. So how does it affect piety? It, it, that's how it does it. Amen. So as we think about the confession and a desire to become more confessional, what are some good um, tools that can help us in studying the confession or utilizing the confession more perhaps in our ecclesial life, in our churches, or in our personal lives? There's nothing better than the two books that Jim's written. Uh, they're out there. You can get them. I cannot commend them enough. Um, you cannot condemn them enough? <laughs> yeah, condemn, commend. I forget what I said. But anyway, they're good. But go buy them. Go, go get those books. They're great. You can study them. You can have Bible studies with them. Um, so I, I would commend those two books. Certainly, 
Um, there are other tools. There's been a lot of things written on the Westminster Confession that you can benefit from as well. Um, R.C. Sproul did one not too long before he died, and it's very, very warm and good as well, and, and Sproul-esque. So uh, I, I'd say just read those good, studied examinations of the confessions, and you'll be helped.